Welcome back. We have so much to talk about today with our powerhouse roundtable. The legislative session that ended yesterday, the turmoil in Venezuela. Well, let's get to it. But first, some introductions. We have a great panel today. Juan Carlos Planes. JC is an attorney in Miami and a former Republican state representative. He served in the state house from 2002 to 2010 and keeps a close eye on the legislature. Chris Smith is an attorney in Fort Lauderdale and a former Democratic state representative and senator, also keeping an eye there. Tim Padgett is a busy man this week, the America's <laughs> correspondent for WLRN, Miami Herald News, covering Latin America and the Caribbean, and he did that as well for Time Magazine, and might I say for us too, in many respects. <laughs> so, so Enjoy nice it. to have you all. Great to see you. J.C. Planas, um, let's sort of begin with a bottom line assessment. It seems to me that this session of the legislature was a slam dunk for the Republican leadership and Governor DeSantis. Democrats did not do very well at you all. You know, it's, it, what's interesting is, and, and this was pointed out in the Herald, DeSantis had about the same numbers in the legislature that Rick Scott did, but because DeSantis was such a much more effective communicator with the legislature right. and understood the process more, he was able to get more of what his wish list was than Rick Scott was ever able to do. Um, and is, is starting off as a very successful governor. I think one of my favorite victories was, and they brought him into the floor when they passed it, this was one of Jeb Bush's Jeb Bush. victories as well. Yeah. But you know, a after the election, Chris Smith, the, yes. the governor did a lot of things that really raised eyebrows in a good way among Democrats. Yeah. And that's the environment and, and you know, some education money. It's been a real mixed bag with him. I mean, in some sense, you've seen him go way to, you know, his Donald Trump roots. But in some sense, he's you know done some things that have uh, um, helped the Democrats and made us a, a little bit happy. But it, I agree that this was a session in which you went far right on a lot of the issues. But one thing I noticed um, with Governor DeSantis uh, as opposed to Governor Scott, DeSantis comes in as kind of an insider. Well, remember when Rick Scott came in, he came <coughs> in as an outsider. He didn't really yeah. know any legislators or know the process. Right. He was yeah. going to be the new sheriff in town, but yes. it turned out to be very much... Like the old sheriff, <laughs> yeah, yes. you know, uh, Tim Padgett, uh, mm -hmm. uh, let me get your view on the Sanctuary Cities bill. I mean, in so many ways, what this does is that it puts Florida in line with uh, the Trump administration with 2020. I mean, the larger theme here is not very welcoming to immigrants, undocumented immigrants. It could cast that pall over immigration. There's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, there really wasn't any such thing as a sanctuary city <laughs> right. in, Florida. in Florida. Not even Miami-Dade <laughs> County uh, right. uh, what was, was considered a sanctuary uh, refuge for immigrants. I think the big question that's going to come out of this, and it's a big Tenth Amendment issue, and I think that's one of the big problems with this whole legislation, is that you're going to see a lot of municipalities and counties saying, okay, great, we're not going to be sanctuary cities. Now, what's the federal government going to do in terms of reimbursing us right. for helping you nab these illegal undocumented it's immigrants? It's an unfunded mandate in many exactly. respects, as the police chief of the city of Miami said. Yeah. You know what I find fascinating, we were talking about it with uh, Senator Thurston, is um, the Venezuelans who might be here yeah. without documentation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, on one hand... Visa overstays quite a visa bit. Visa yeah. overstays and, and you watch what happens and say, can you blame them at the moment? But no. 
you have this push for you know hardline on immigration yet by the same people who are very hardline against the government they're trying to oust right now in Venezuela how do you send those people back I, I think there's a lot of contradictions in the immigration yeah. policy of the Trump administration. I mean, mm -hmm. just the economic numbers that we saw Friday. If we don't accept a lot more legal immigrants, we could tank the economy. Because once the economy uh, heats like that, if right. you don't have a constant feed of worker class, you're going you're to screw right. up the economy. And I think that's been, for us economic conservatives, that's been one of the most troubling things of this new Republican Party on immigration. It's, it's economically foolish. From a historical standpoint, it was amazing to see a southern state invite the federalism of their local law enforcement. I mean, given the history of the South, right. what we're basically saying is, okay, we're going to federalize our local and enforce this federal law here in, in Florida and make our local sheriffs and our local police officers Agents federal of officers. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. to Glenna's point, I think we're going to see a lot more pressure now being put on uh, Congress to and the Trump administration to give groups like the Venezuelans temporary protected yes. status. Yeah. We're really going to see that build. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Chris Smith, you have been in the legislature for those many years. You served a champion of education and yes. public education. Now we're going to see, as Lena pointed out earlier with Senator Thurston, $130 million out of the state general checking account, as it were, that's going to go for these scholarships to allow kids to go to private and even religious schools. And that is money that could have been spent for traditional public schools. And I think that's the biggest difference because we've had a voucher program for many years, but it was a tax credit program. Right. A corporation gives money, take it off on their taxes. But this is money directly out of general government that could go for fixing the roof at a school or fixing up some of our schools or even putting, you know, more resource officers in the schools that are going to go now to private schools and more importantly, religious schools. And yeah. because of, I guess, our new Supreme Court, they think that it's going to pass through. We don't have Justice Perriente or Justice Quince anymore. We have three new justices that are, I mean, good, you know, good people, but I guess they will have another uh, view of the constitutionality of this voucher program. The, the, the money travels with the student, Chris, and I think that's the important thing. I think that when we look at what students would go into the private school system, the money will go with them. It's not just going to be some sort of block grant. I think that and people ask me, if you're so anti-Trump, why are you still a Republican? I think this is one of the issues where I, I'm firmly in the conservative camp. I think that the, the current system has given too few choices to parents, too few choices to students, and this is just another way to make sure that parents get the opportunity that I got to go to a private school, to have the opportunity that my kids have who go to a, a Catholic school. I think all parents should be entitled to this choice. But what do the taxpayers themselves think about this. In full disclosure, my wife is a public school teacher, and I think one of the big issues hanging over this, and one of the big questions is, okay, if we do shift this money from the taxpayer to the family that wants to send that money to private schools, why in this state are we not mandating that private schools meet the same requirements mm -hmm. that public schools have to you know, meet? You know, I hear that accountability argument a lot. Yeah. Private schools do have accountability yeah. standards. They, they may not be the same as the Florida state standards, but, but, but if, if I could just be Archdiocesan schools have their own accountability. I mean, in, in archdiocese schools, you have standardized testing. Mm -hmm. You don't have the reporting requirements that the public schools have, but yet we still see the college graduation or the college acceptance numbers 
fairly high. We see the high school graduation numbers yeah. much, much can higher. I, can I just play devil's advocate yes. for a moment and say I listen to a lot of people talking about the Florida standards and mm -hmm. the standards <coughs> are fine. It's the way they're measured and teaching to the test gets a lot <coughs> of controversial attention of we don't want my I don't want my student sitting in a classroom in public school just being taught to pass a test and so that kind of accounting accountability I've heard people feel like has a, a great big downside but as you talk about tra money traveling with the student whenever you take away pieces of that pie that makes it worse for those that are left behind so you can keep taking money out keep taking money out those that are still in our traditional public schools our constitutional public but, but schools we can, we can are going to be left behind with less we money. Can I think the one important thing the district cost differential is back finally I think yeah. this is the one good news for our Miami-Dade public did schools bring that back? they yes they did the study last year it's starting to be implemented it is going to be fully implemented next year but we took our first giant step on bringing back the cost so differential. South Florida gets its money back yes <laughs> stay tuned more roundtable right after the break welcome back we are in the midst of a very good roundtable with JC Planis Miami attorney former state representative former state senator representative Chris Smith Tim Paget from WLRN uh, America's reporter Tim talk with us a little bit about the situation in Venezuela as we said earlier um, Tuesday was the day that Guaido right. said the military is going to come to me well he told the Washington Post yesterday I misfigured I really thought the military was going to move over and support the opposition and they didn't. And the problem is it's the third time he's misfigured. This happened in January, happened in February, and now it happened this past week. The problem here is we are succumbing to this rather foolish notion that regime change in Venezuela is going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And I think if we learned anything mm -hmm. this past week is that we've got to take two steps back and realize that taking down authoritarian regimes takes time. And we're going to have to take that time now, especially when we're taught, as Brian Fonseca said, that we're dealing with a military that is firmly entrenched, has drug ac uh, trafficking accusations. Hey, it's going to be a very difficult negotiation with the military to get it to turn, but we've got to take the time. There's a lot of wishful thinking. I mean, a lot of people hope that Maduro ends up like Nicolae Ceausescu did. I mean, that, the Romanian mm -hmm. revolution was 48 right. hours and the military turned overnight, um, it's not going to happen like or that. Or Gaddafi. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. the pictures of Gaddafi. Gaddafi is the same thing. Know, and, yeah. and, and again, we've seen it before, so we wish it. But with something like Venezuela, yeah. where there's oil money, where there's right. drug money, that's a problem. Those, those countries didn't have that entrenched corruption. How uh, important is it, though, that by their constitution, there should be a President Guaido. I mean, that is what the Constitution says at the moment. That's, yeah, the, le that's the leverage he has, and that's yeah. what he should be using then to create cracks in the wall, and then you exploit those cracks. That's how you bring regimes like this down. Tuesday wasn't a failure. The problem is it, it, it ended up looking like a failure because of what they promised, which is we're going to bring the regime down today. But in reality, it was another crack in Maduro's wall. But, and that's Maduro a will fall. If you are going to be an effective dictator, yeah. trains must run on time. Right. Trains don't run right. on time. Right. He yeah. will eventually yeah, fall. But, but, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. I mean, short of yeah. military intervention, when you look at all of these regime changes, it takes some time. And I think what Senator Rubio said this week about having patience and not, you know, yeah. just falling back. Right. Having patience, but still working. Patience don't mean just sitting around, yeah. but working hard about it. I think we will get there. Look at Sudan and last month. That yeah. took a lot of time. Right. Yeah. We also heard from, uh, along with Senator Rubio, Senator Rick Scott, who's <coughs> been very outspoken, mm -hmm. very hawkish. Here's what uh, Senator Scott had to say.
So I believe it's time for American military and the military of every democracy around the world to say enough's enough. We're going to stop this genocide. Boy, that's about as hawkish as you get, Tim. I, I mean, we talked about it with Brian Fonseca and Leonardo Trecci. You know, the idea that even the U.S. military would line up at the Colombian border to take in humanitarian aid, uh, I mean, that puts American soldiers uh, lives at risk. The rhetoric is not helpful for, for, for two reasons. One, mm -hmm. as you said, it, it's not a threat really that we're going to go through with because mm -hmm. if we did go through it, we would be looking at an Iraq-style quagmire in Venezuela. But if we're not going to go through with it, it reduces our credibility right. and it also scares away our international coalition that we've been able to cobble together, especially in Latin America, right. on this. And we need those countries to help, again, right. negotiate with the military to get them to turn. Yeah. Uh, let me just switch gears a little bit this week. Huge development. Uh, Helms-Burton Title III. Uh, 22 years after actually being on the books, the Trump administration, part of the changes is now citizens, U.S. citizens who had property in Cuba, who was con it was confiscated by the Cuban government during the revolution, can now sue for it. And two entities did in South Florida this week. Um, one of the interesting things, both were owners of families, were owners of the ports, Santiago, Havana Docks. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the Carnival cruise ships, and Carnival was the subject of the lawsuit, but there are other cruise ships that dock there under different companies while with OFAC licenses, Treasury licenses under U.S. law, J.C. Plan is doing business there under current U.S. law. How, how does that work with these, these lawsuits now being well, filed? Well, I, I think we knew that when Obama opened up mm -hmm. Cuba and cruise ships started going there, there would be a negative backlash eventually. I think we're seeing that now. I don't know whether this is going to work. And I also think that some of the other Helms-Burton lawsuits that may be uh, on the pipeline mm -hmm may have results of ousting people in this community that didn't people maybe not realize do you know what, what have you mean business I, I think mm -hmm. that you know this is something that's dangerous because you never know what's going to happen you never know who may have had business in, in Cuba I think we have other people in this mm -hmm. community who may have benefited from from confiscated properties and we don't know yet so yeah. we're going well, on the well, unknown we, and we should point out that the US claims settlement commission has already certified over 5,800 sure. yeah. claims from people who mm -hmm. lost properties uh, to the Castro regime and have filed claims. They've been certified. I mean, the ones you covered this on uh, on Tuesday, Glenna, I mean, these are certified claims. Certified claims waiting to be put into the courts, but many of them have businesses or properties in Cuba where the businesses on those properties are Canadian or Italian. Mm -hmm. And I think from what I've understood the 22 years of hiatus in filing these law lawsuits was a U.S. nod to its allied countries whose entities mm -hmm. are on these properties. That's, that's the difference between the certified claims yeah. that you're talking about and what's going on now. These lawsuits have a much more of a foreign policy component to them yeah. and that is yeah. to scare away foreign investment right. in Cuba. Right. But I think um, JC had a good point about Pandora's box opening it up yes, now yes. with a lot of U.S. corporations that have been doing businesses yes. and that are currently doing business. You kind of opening up Pandora's box. It's going to be interesting to yeah. see. Well, we'll see what's in there. What comes out. All right, Cuba gentlemen. is a big Pandora's box. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming in. Great. 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 Great.